0: 1 Kings chapter 18, we've got a lot to cover. This is one of those chapters where you can't wait to get to it. And uh, well, here we are Elijah on Mount Carmel. We'll go right to verse 20. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 20. And Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. This is a large gathering. And factoring in the travel distances, that it's on a mountain, not the peak of the mountain, uh, it likely is a few days after the invitation was given. If you look back at verse 19 of chapter 18, you'll see he says, Now therefore send gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel. And of course he invites the 400 people and 50 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Ashtorea. The 400 prophets of Ashtorea will not respond. Uh, It will save their lives in the end. Uh, But anyway, this is um, a large event. The king of the northern kingdom is overseeing all of this uh, for for the nation on that side. Elijah, of course, on the side of God. And Ahab does, this apostate king, what the prophet tells him, because Elijah is the rainmaker in his eyes. He, you know, he's the one that said the rain would stop, and he's going to be the one that brings it back. You, it's just these disconnects. You know, why is a human being capable of so much intelligence, and yet when it comes to God, they are otherwise fools? Not, you know, it's, it's the capacity for evil. And it is uh, everywhere in the scriptures, it's everywhere in, in life. And yet in, in, in that number of people that are intelligent and refuse God, there are also those that are intelligent and they receive God. Well, uh, we go to verse 21. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him, not a word. Now remember, idolatry was now popular in the northern kingdom. Idolatry allowed things that following the true God would not allow. That was its big draw. And this one verse is, of course, a kingpin verse. How long do you halt or falter between two opinions? Make up your mind. Are you Are going to serve Yahweh or are you going to serve Baal? Because they were mixing the two. They were still claiming Yahweh while they worshipped baal They had little figurines all over their house. He was expecting the people to accept this fact, that the victor of this contest would admit that that is the God to worship and the other one is worthless. That's where I, Elijah is going with this. But fools are fools because they continuously make the wrong choice consistently. Without excuse. You say, why did you... I mean, I'm not talking about something. We all make mistakes. We all act foolishly. But these are spiritual fools. And they are consistent. And they're very deadly. Let's not lose sight of that. These people are not, you know, just these quiet worshipers. They are violent. So he asks, how long are you going to falter between two opinions? Literally in the Hebrew, how long will you limp between the twigs? Make up your mind. You're dilly-dallying, making the choice. They had become mugwumps. Their mugs sat on one side of the fence and their womp on the other side of the fence. They couldn't make up their minds. So are they going to serve Yahweh? Or are they going to serve Baal? Combined worship with the idols, which is the rejection of God. You, you, we find it when people say, I'm a Christian, and yet they continue to worship things or give... Uh, uh, Respect to spiritual forces that God has condemned. Uh, The the easiest one, perhaps, to point out is someone who claims that they're Christian and then they, they consult the horoscope, something like that. And because of the evil influence of Ahab and Jezebel, the people are limping between two opinions. They really helped this along by importing these fake gods. The people may have objected in their hearts at this point. They likely did, very likely did. They probably would have said, We serve Yahweh. It would have been false. They couldn't back up their confession with their behavior, with their actions. Short walk to their house and they would have just exposed their folly. Matthew, we read this uh, Sunday, 624. No one can serve well, no not we'll get to Matthew twelve in a minute when we read Sunday. This one, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in mammon. And there, of course, it's you can't serve God in money, but the truth it is it, it links to other behaviors also, and idolatry being the strongest. To be without God's opinion of God, is to be without the salvation of God. Now, there are people we come across in life, and we don't know. They're not believers, and they, they die, and we just hope in the mercy of God. It's a valid hope, but we can't approach it that way, not, not while they're living. Amongst the living, we've got to let them have it. There is not, it's not worth taking the chance to be indifferent about Christ. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Jesus said it. and He meant it. And we believe it. These people that Elijah was dealing with. Were people of a very rich and wonderful spiritual history. They possessed the scriptures as a people. The word of God. The oracles of God was in their possession. It was still being Formed, of course, but much of it was already there, and yet deliberately choosing Baal because of the license he gave to the flesh. The Christian will find that they struggle with the flesh in various areas, but still remain faithful to Christ, trusting in his mercy and his kindness, and it is abundant. The unbeliever doesn't do that, and this distinction costs the individual everything. And our message is to try to help them to not come to this awful conclusion uh, in this life at at death. Well, here they are deliberately choosing Baal because of the passions that he allowed. They had become polytheists. You know, you can have more than one God. Not, of course, as a true believer, lumping, lumping in Yahweh in the mix. Each little God had their share of respect. That's polytheism. The, I don't know, I think the 18th century mystic, and not in a bad sense, just more in the sense of a deeper thinker, Francois Fenelon wrote, if it is bow, follow him, follow the world, give yourself up to him, and he shall see on that day of your death if he will deliver you from my hands. And so he just says, you know, see see where this ends, you following these fake gods. See how this is going to end for you. They won't deliver you from judgment. They will not deliver you from evil. It says here in verse 21, but the people answered him not a word. Why not? When Elijah says, If God is, if Yahweh is God serve him, if Baal is God serve him, why, did, why do they just Not say anything, because they were compromised. And that compromise left them unable to commit. They could not stand up and say, I serve Yahweh and no one else. The devil is a thief, and he uses idolatry to steal the heads and hearts of people, then and now. He just doesn't have to use so many statues anymore. So they answered him, not a word. Verse 22, then Elijah said to the people, I alone alone am left, a prophet of Yahweh. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. See, there's no mention of the 400 Ashtoreth prophets because they're not there. Jezebel probably wouldn't let those men go. She, uh, of course, financed or subsidized them. Elijah is not saying, I alone am left and I need your sympathy. He doesn't need their sympathy. To them... uh, they are grasshoppers to him, and he is a giant to them, (laughs) whether they're going to find that out. But it is still an uncalled-for statement because he doesn't let this go. Elijah said to the people, verse 22, I alone am left a prophet of Yahweh. Well, he dismissed Obadiah's faithfulness because he says it, and that fact that he continues to say it, and God has to put him straight in the end. But... He dismisses Obadiah who risked his life to protect the prophets. What about the hundred devout prophets that remained prophets and did not capitulate and go over to Jezebel's side? They were faithful. Then his own servant who will come to in verse 43 and again in chapter 19 Elijah abandons. So this, you know, the fact is the prophet was messing up here. Uh, Truth is not changed by our opinions. His opinion was he was the only one. And he's a great prophet. This does not take any of that away. It's just God has said, let me show you something about my prophet. As great as he was, he's still just like you. That's why in the New Testament we read, Elijah was a man of like passions. He fought with sin also. He was not above the curse. This notion of being the solitary faithful one Sits with him. When we get to chapter 19, he says it twice more. After he runs from Jezebel's henchmen, he is stubborn about this and he is wrong and he's still a great prophet. That is encouraging. It is encouraging to me and it should be encouraging to you. I tried finding an excuse for Elijah. I tried, well, he was really just talking about this group and that, but, I, but God does not. Treat him that way when he says, by the way, I've got 7,000 others that are faithful to me. They've not bowed to bow. They don't have to be the prophets on your level. I love this about the story. As far as we know, it is true that he is the only one outwardly going at the king, but that's not what he is saying. And that's why God corrects him on a broader scale. And so he will run for his life and then lament his behavior and continue to boast at the same time. If I were his friend, I would have said, Elijah, you got issues. It's, it's eating that locust stuff, man. It's messing with your head. Again, he is no less the great prophet for this, this, this blunder. We all have something about us. It says, but the Baals, uh, the prophets of Baal, 450 men. So this, this is a big deal, to get all these people walking up the mountain, uh, the, the prophets of Baal alone, 450. Then you've got all the, the, the Israelites coming up. Certainly, Elijah is in the minority. He, his servant, and perhaps a, a few others here and there that he's really not <laughs> applauding. Verse 23, Therefore, let them give us two bulls, and let them choose one bowl for themselves. Cut it in pieces. And lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay on it, the wood, but put no fire under it. So he's come ready. I mean, you don't just show up on a mountain with bowls. I mean, you, just, you have to bring them up there. And so he, this is premeditated, of course. This is not a Levitical offering. So, you, you know, how come he's not in Jerusalem offering? Well, he's not, this is not an act of worship. This is a duel. This is a contest, and he's using it in the political, uh, not the political, the spiritual arena, the religious arena. The prophet is using an abandoned altar. We get more of this in verse 30, and that indicates that God remains ever faithful, even where worship fails. You can return to God. Authentic believers can return. Rebuild what Satan has ruined. There's a little story about why these altars that he's going to use, as I said, we'll get to it in verse 30. uh, There's a story behind that, and we'll we'll come to it. Verse 24, Then you call on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of Yahweh, and the God who answers by fire. He is God. So all the people answered and said, It is well spoken. So he says, Call... On your collection of make believe gods, because Baal was the, the main one, but there were others, like they like the Greek and Roman mythology. Zeus was the guy or Jupiter, but they had all these other little gods under zeus and that was going on here too. The Greeks and the Romans did not invent that. The Greeks grabbed it from much of it from uh, these in, 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 in this part of the world, and, and uh, the um, Romans, of course, just took them from the Greeks and They admired, the Romans admired the Greeks and uh, took their gods and renamed them. Well, um, good for Elijah here when he says, You call on the name of your gods, plural. He's avoiding mentioning their names. Good for him, Exodus 23, verse 13, make no mention of the name of other gods, nor let it be heard from your mouth. Don't show any kind of... Don't acknowledge them as though they are gods. They're they're just these made-up things from hell. They're demonic. He says, I will call on the name of Yahweh, the real God. David, leave it to David, King David, to, to expand on this commandment in Exodus 23. David writes in Psalm 16, Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another god. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. Where, where David says they drink offerings of blood, he's they're disgusting. That's what he's saying. I'm not even going to name these things. And so you wouldn't hear David give him any attention whatsoever. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. Well, there's a verse for the refrigerator or the coffee mug or the t-shirt. The God of action this is one of those verses, as, as was the previous, uh, not the previous verse, but the verse where we read how long halt you between two opinions. Those are verses that you preach whole sermons from. Well, at Pentecost, God answered the expectation of the apostles with tongues as a fire. And he will baptize you with fire and of the Holy Spirit. This is a big part of our, our faith. This is our God of action. It shows up several times in Leviticus, chapter 9. The fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. You bet they did. Lightning from heaven, boom, set the altar up. And, of course, strange fire was brought by uh, the, the, two, the two sons, eldest sons of the high priest Aaron. And they were struck, Nadab and Abihu. Numbers 16, And fire came out from Yahweh and consumed the 250 men who were offering incense. Yeah, because they were protesting against Moses and Aaron. They were coming against God's appointed leaders. And God took them out. David, when he committed the great sin of numbering the people against God, when his flesh was exalted as king, and God dealt with him, and and David, of course, repents and makes this altar. In 1 Chronicles 21, David built there an altar to Yahweh and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the name of the Lord. And he, God, answered him from heaven by fire on the altar of burnt offerings. And that's how the, where the temple went. Revelation 20 tells us the last time this takes place in human history. This is into the millennial reign after Satan has been bound for a thousand years, then released again. Again, he cannot touch the believers, but he can touch the people who were born after the great tribulation. And Revelation 29, they went up on the breath of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Now that's impressive because you have armies surrounding the city and fire comes out from heaven and gets them all like on one shot. Maybe they were all holding hands and it just took one strike of lightning and it just... All right, all right let's go back. You can't, you can't see it. You can't. You're not there. Did you hear the one about the two guys that walk? I don't have anything. I just wanted to see if you're listening. Anyway, so all the people here at the bottom of verse 24 answered and said, It is well spoken. So they say, Fair enough. Terms are set. And the prophet has perfect assurance that God is not going to fail him because God is the one that started this. In verse 1, God said, go now, show yourself to... Well, we should read it. Uh, 1 Kings 18, verse 1, And it came to pass after many days that the word of Yahweh came to Elijah in the third year, saying, go, present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. Bookmark that, because that is, that is a big part of the story when Elijah begins to call for the rain. Verse 25, now Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one bowl for yourselves and prepare it first. For you are many and call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. <laughs> Don't let me see you boys with matches. This is a duel. So his confidence is born of faith, but it's miraculous at the same time. From the beginning, from the time that the word of the Lord came to him and told him to do this. Now, to prepare these bulls, it of course is time-consuming, a lot of labor. Uh, to construct the earthen or stone altars up there on the mountain, in Elijah's case, he's going to reconstruct an altar. Um, How would they get the bulls up there? Well, very slowly, but they got them up there. The slaughter, the preparation of the bulls, the haul, the wood, and the and the water that's necessary. And not only was the water necessary for what Elijah's going to do, but they would want to rinse their hands. Even the pagans would, to some point, want to rinse off. Anyway, the false prophets, here they are, replete with emotion, and passion, devotion, intense emotional devotion for their God. And yet, when they fail, they will not convert. When God answers by fire, They will not agree that he is God, and so they will suffer the consequence. The fire of truth. It is our our truth to the world. It is that fire that we bring to convict and to draw. Still, how few get converted compared to how many reject it. Broad is the way, wide is the gate, and there are many that go in by it. Verse 26 so they took the bull which was given them, and they prepared it, and called on the name of Baal from morning even till noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice, no one answered. And then they leaped about the altar, which they had made. Elijah, again, he came ready. They did not know this was going to be a duel like this until he gets up there, but that doesn't matter. So they took the bull and they slaughtered it and called on the name of Baal from morning to, to, to evening. Useless, but energetic. A lot of activity going on there. Boy, you could just see them today. They would be there with their cameras filming this and uploading it to, to the, very, the internet, and you could just see their devotion, their passion, and people would be putting in the comments, Oh, I just love their passion and their commitment. It's to thin air, it's to vapor. There's nothing there. Saying, bow, oh, hear us. Well, they pray too. That's all that you have there. You have pagans praying. But there was no voice. No one answered. Because there was no such God. Then they leaped about the altar which they had made. So they intensified their petition, petition to God. Showing off how devoted they are, he's got to answer. He's got to appreciate that. God has got to be impressed by our passion. Well, Elijah wasn't impressed. He's over on the side snacking on locusts, watching them. <laughs> it likely refers to ritual dance leaping about. And uh, the fact that we, well, the truth that comes out of this is sincerity is no proof of truth. Just because someone is devoted doesn't mean they're devoted to the truth. These people, again, are, they, they're devoted to a God that doesn't exist but is concocted in hell and imparted to them, and they willingly receive it and like it. And that's where they are. In Verse 27, And so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is meditating or he is busy or on a journey, or perhaps he is sleeping and must be awakened. This is three hours later. They, we're not told exactly what time they got there, but we know it's the morning. And the the, uh, the reason why I went into the time to get the bulls up to construct, because I'm trying to say, hey, these guys probably got there like nine o'clock in the morning at the least. And so three hours later, here we are at noontime, and Elijah's like, you know what, I'm going to have a little fun with this, as he's picking out the locust legs from his teeth. So he mocked them. He mocked their hysteria. We mock the hysteria as we look around at this pagan heathen sick culture. We mock them, hoping that they're gonna say, you know, you do have a point. But unfortunately, they just double down. And that's what these guys are gonna do as he mocks them, he's gonna ramp it up. He said, Cry loud, for he is a god, louder. You don't want your God to miss what you're saying. After all, he's far away. They had already been yelling at the top of their lungs from from the morning. They're going to be hoarse by the time this is all over. Elijah did not care because he knew, again, he did not care. His mocking them, he knew these were evil people. And I'll bring some of that out in a little bit. Who massacred the prophets in verse 4? There we read For so it was, while Jezebel massacred the prophets of Yahweh, that Obadiah had taken one hundred prophets and hidden them, fifty to a cave, and fed them with bread and water. Who did the killing? It wasn't Jezebel. She's up in the palace painting her face. Was it her prophets? Probably was. So again, Elijah knows who these, these boys are. And he says, either he's meditating, after all, Baal was supposed to be a deep thinker, or he's busy. Now, that's a euphemism for he's in the outhouse. (laughs) Because those who form their own gods make those gods like them. They give them human characteristics, like the, the, the mythological Greek gods, and they just put them on steroids. They just give them some superpowers, but they're still vain and spiteful and you know, all of the sinful characteristics. They just can't get away. They cannot imagine even gods without sin, because their gods are impure and not holy. Holiness means pure, and their gods are not any such thing. And this is why there were so many people receptive of the apostles when they went into the pagan world with Paul and Barnabas and Paul and Silas, because many of those people had just fed up with the fake gods, and this was truth that they were receiving, and they gobbled it up. And then of course Satan has to respond to that and mix into the church uh the trouble. It says here, or he is on a journey. His lights are on, but no one's home. Maybe, you know, you're calling him because you think he's there and he's not maybe he's gone fishing or something. We would think that this sarcasm would be an effective weapon against or to expose ridiculous ideas. But the hold, the the combination, the hold of Satan and the determination of sinners to be without truth is stronger. To say, you know, I don't like the truth. This is better. And if it's not true, it should be true. And we see people like this today. All the liberals are like this. It doesn't matter that it's not true. It should be true. And they do that with their enemies. Yeah, I, I know you're not guilty, but you should be guilty because you don't agree with me. So we're going to treat you as guilty. And you're going to be guilty. And you can't be proven innocent. Even if you come on our side. This was the, Thomas Cranmer who was burned at the stake by Bloody Mary. Uh, he re, you know, he said, okay, I'm, I'm changing teams. I recant what I'm saying. I agree with the Catholic Church. And they let him go for a while. And they said, you know what? We don't believe you. And they burned him at the stake. And then he, again, said, yeah, well, going out as he was burning, it is said. And he puts the hand up that he, he signed his recant with and is to say, yeah, well, I don't believe you anyway. I do. I, I stick by what I said. You're, you're liars. <laughs> kind of a last shot. Anyway, uh, this human behavior, it, um, sarcasm can infuriate the guilty. I mean, look at the people. Some of you remember a few years back, someone saw the face of Mary in a grilled cheese sandwich. And some of you might remember that. I mean, this is insanity. Human beings aren't born this stupid. Something has to uh, enter their heart and their head to get them to be this bad. That thing sold on eBay for thousands of dollars. Somebody else bought it. Yeah, I can see it. It's like, man, what is wrong with human beings? Sin, original sin. That creates the practice of sin. He says here, or perhaps he is sleeping and must be awakened. As I'm saying this, there are those that would be offended. If they heard, they would want to kill me for saying such things. If you went down to, uh, I don't know, some city in Pakistan and stood up and said, show me some proof that Muhammad was not a liar. They'd kill you. (laughs) It's not a debate. You take it or else we kill you. And, um, anyway, was pointless, it's such an easy art. You're shooting ducks in a bathtub, some of these positions that are out there. But it doesn't matter. They won't convert, as we're seeing here. They're going to lose the contest. And it made total sense to say to Elijah, we have been wrong. We have followed the wrong. Now, the, some people will do that, but the prophets of Baal will, will not. Ahab will not. And his court will not. Or perhaps he's sleeping and must be awakened. Well, make-believe gods are in the image of falling man. Uh, Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8, just tell it just like that. Those who make them are like them. And he might be asleep, and he needs to be woke. <laughs> what well, is the stupidest... I mean, as some of you narrate, it's, it's, again, it's just pointless. It, it's, if, if, you, if you mock them, they just double down. So Elijah's pitiless. Irony is refreshing to see this. He he knew there was no such God as Baal. And that he wasn't going to answer the phone. At this point, Satan would love to have come to the rescue. To jump in and help his buddies here. To set that altar on fire. But he's too weak. He can't do it. Elijah turned the laugh of contempt upon Jezebel's popular, futile, false faith in front of everyone. And we can do the same by just preaching the gospel. Um, Oh, by the way, I I, I found the missing link on eBay. And, (laughs) I mean, they're still looking for it after all these years. Where do they get finished with us with the UFOs? I don't dispute that there are objects out there that I can't identify. I see them when I go to Walmart. (laughs) Okay, I don't go to Walmart, but I drive by. Anyway, uh, yeah, wait, you know, anyway, verse 28. So they cried aloud and cut themselves, as was their custom, with knives and lances until the blood gushed out on them. I mean, you know it's the devil when he starts getting people to hurt themselves in the act of worship. Uh, This desperation of the spiritually demented. Deuteronomy 14.1, God said to his people, you are the children of Yahweh, your God, you shall not cut yourselves. Does a Christian need to be told this? Does a Christian need to be taken to the Bible and said, don't do that? Uh... Oh, they are going to argue and say, oh, that's the Old Testament. When God reveals his position on something, unless he makes an adjustment to it in the New Testament, it stands. You're not to cut yourselves. The pagan priest they used all their daylight up in desperate hope and for nothing. So just to review, from morning until noon, they prepared their bull, they prayed for fire from their God, still no answer by noon. Elijah begins to mock them and ridicule them at noon. This excited them even more, so they start cutting themselves. And they continued until the evening sacrifice, about 3 p.m. They were dancing up and down. They were hoarse from screaming out, from chanting, cutting themselves at knives, mingling their own blood with the sacrifice, praying and behaving as religious fanatics. Frantically, hoping that their make-believe world would come true for nothing. Big lesson. This is a lesson you'd like to preach to an unbeliever. But, you know, you could only be successful if God was working in the heart of that believer already. Because you could not walk away and say, there, I converted him. Verse 29. And when midday was passed... They prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. And so there's a time stamp for us. Uh, the morning sacrifice was at, in, in verse 26, at, and, and again, here we are uh, three hours later around 3 p.m., um, but there was no voice, no one answered. Thrice repeated, no, no voice, no answer. No one paid attention. Uh, Whoever finally compiled this was enjoying this. Uh, You can tell. Uh, Their day is going to get worse, though. This is just the beginning of troubles for them. Uh, Verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of Yahweh that was broken down. So that was an altar to Yahweh. That's what it says. This, priest, this happens before the building of the temple. This, this probably goes back to the days of the judges, certainly before the, in the, at least in the days of David, before he became king. Not that David did this to the people. The indigenous the Israelites, they were worship. they were able to worship in high places before the temple like this. Exodus 32, verse 26, Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on Yahweh's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. And that's, Israel was originally supposed to be a nation of, of, of priests. But because of this episode of the golden calf, the Levites got that position. They, the people forfeited it. It's when Moses said, Who's standing with me to, to judge this idolatry? And they sided with him. Well, Elijah says here, then Elijah said to the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him. And so uh, we're going to see what's going to happen. And they repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. Still, they're not believers, but they know bowels not getting anywhere. Um, yeah. <laughs> Never mind. Um, it, the, unfortunately, there are churches that could, could use the repair like this. Uh, by neglecting Christ and the word of of, of God, they have... The, the places of sacrifices are broken down. They're in ruin. Now, when I said that this is likely one of the high places that were allowed uh, in the days prior to Jerusalem being established, that is built on First 1 Kings 19.10. So it's not just um, a fit. It is that. It is a logical fit, but it is based on Scripture also, and that's where the strength of it is. First 1 Kings 19.10 Uh, So he said, I have been very zealous. This is when he's explaining to God why he is the great prophet. I have been very zealous for Yahweh, God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone alone am left, and they seek to take my life. And then, God, you'll be without the great prophet. Uh, Don't get me wrong. I love this prophet. He is just amazing. But I also enjoy that God has said, let me show you some things about Elijah so that you won't feel so bad about yourself. And um, so then I can say, well, God, can I still feel bad about others? (laughs) So anyway, these altars, they were torn down. And that is a significant part of the story because it means that there were those who were trying to reshape and reform their own nation. There were Jews uh, Israelites that did not want to worship Yahweh so they tore these altars down so they could worship their pagan gods and we're seeing that this as a country we're seeing people trying to get rid of the constitution trying to get rid of American history changing the the, the Cleveland Indians baseball team they're now known as the Guardians are you kidding me i would if i was a guardian i'd be offended Because you can't win; somebody's going to get offended no matter what you do. But that the point is, you have people trying to revise, reshape, reform, redo, uh, and that was happening there also. So it certainly is not new. Verse thirty-one: And Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of tribes, one of the sons of Jacob, of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of Yahweh had come, saying, "Israel shall be your name." Now the significance is, is profound here. The 12 stones, the, the Jews certainly knew what was going on. The historian who documents this is, certainly knows what's happening. God's original design and desire was for Israel to be united before him. But everything is all messed up now. And that's what the prophet is pointing out. Verse 32, then with the stones he built an altar in the name of Yahweh, and he made a trench around the altar, large enough to hold two sets of seed. It's about four, over four gallons. And uh, verse 33. And he put wood on the in the and he put the wood in order. Cut the bull in pieces, laid it on the wood, and said, "Fill four water pots with water and pour it out on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood." Where, you know, if you go you go up on Mount Carmel, there are a lot of stones up there, large, sizable stones that you can lift and, and you can build an altar. I, I remember sitting up on Mount Carmel on stones, and I'm praying to the Lord, uh, telling him how I'm the only really smart pastor on the mountain right now. And <laughs> uh, then I got a thought in my head. You know, snakes like rocks. So I went to the tour guide. Hey, you got poisonous snakes here? Yeah, we got a lot of them. Hmm. Would have been good to tell me that for sitting over there in the bushes by them. Anyway, uh, that's truly happened. I did not want to sit over there anymore. Uh, (laughs) Because it was warm enough and they come out. Hey, how you doing? They just appear. They've got this cloaking device. Anyhow, I have a quote from Tozer at this point. Because here we are. He he arranges the altar uh, just the way it's supposed to be. And, of course, he floods it with water. He's going to. He's given the command. To, and they've got to haul this water up. So the clock's ticking, right? Sunli- sundown's coming. Tozer said, theological facts are like the altar of Elijah on Carmel before the fire, before the fire came. Correct, properly laid out, but altogether cold. That has sat with me for over 30 years. Because I think about, you know, okay, well, it has to have the fire of God. It, has, it cannot just be, I've got all these facts. What does it mean to you? Uh, just the last four Sundays, I've been going home with one of the songs stuck in my head, just singing it in my head all week. Uh, this, this Sunday was Source of God, and it has been loving it. Uh, you can't do that if you only have theological facts. All you can do with theological facts is debate. But when you have that fire, that passion, Everything changes. So, yeah, Tozer made a good point, and that's right. If no fire came down on this altar, it would have just been a proper altar, but meaningless as those of the prophets of Baal. Verse 34, then he said, do it a second time, and they did it a second time, and he said, do it a third time, and they said, you know, you're getting carried away. No, they didn't. Do it a third time, and they did it a third time. Now, you've got to love that the prophet speaks to people, do something, tells the king, meet me up there on the mountain with your prophets, and, and it happens. He tells the people, bring two bulls and then, you know, build this altar. Uh, Come to me, build the altar, bring up some water, do it three times. Thoroughly soaking this altar, making them dependent on God. So that no one can say, you snuck a match into the pile. Uh, This is, no match going to light this. Uh, This would be difficult for them to accuse Elijah of trickery. Verse 36, and it came to pass at that time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, there's another time stamp for us, it's about 3 p.m. now, that Elijah the prophet came here and said, Yahweh God of Abraham, Isaac, and all Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. This is huge. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen by it. The elders obtained a good testimony. And that's what we're looking at. Here's a man who said, I believe God's going to make it rain. I believe he's going to send fire on the altar. How do you get this kind of stuff? I've been trying to get it like this, you know. Uh, just, you know, a simple prayer like, God, can there be no other cars on the road when I'm driving? And it's just not happening. Anyhow, this, uh, this is impressive where he says, I... I am your servant, and that I have done all these things by your word. Now, man can be right with that, and he is right. And again, with him, it's got that asterisk on it. Yeah, but I'm the only one, the Tigger complex. Well, remember what he is saying here when we get to verse 43. Um, I reminded you about verse 30 when we we got to that point that was made. Now, this second point is that... um, he is doing this at God's word. This is not that Elijah has said, okay, the drought, I think it should end now. People are having a hard time. That is not what is happening. What is happening is he's, he's doing what God has told him. And that is a big part. We'll come back to that, verse 37 now. Hear me, O Yahweh, hear me, that this people... May know that you are Yahweh God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Another big verse. So the whole Elijah is trying to win souls, win apostates back to God. Jeremiah says, God speaking through him, If you return, O Israel, says Yahweh, return to me, and if you will put away your abominations out of my sight, then you shall not be moved. And this is the heart of God, the mercy of the Lord. He could have said, you know what? I've, I've, after all I've done for these people, this is what I get in return. I'm just going to let them die out and the next generation I'll invest myself in them. But that's not what God does. You cannot say that God loves the, the youngest child in the church any more than the oldest servant in the church. His love does not fade. He doesn't look at us and say, you know, not as, you're not as cute as you used to be. It was so much easier to love you when you were just a little thing. But now, no, that is not what God says. Isaiah talks about that. He says God will be with me even through my old age. Verse 38 Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked the, up the water that was in the trench. If I could just get past these verses so I can make my comment. <laughs> because it's so exciting. This is the fourth time in scripture that this is said at least a fourth time. It's happened Solomon when he dedicated the temple in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. The fire came down on the altar also. Just another example. Verse 39. Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. The chant now comes out. They're converted. They, they said, you know, fair enough. They could halt between two opinions. Well, they're not halted now. This is progress. This, this, imagine if, the prophet, if Elijah gave up on them when they said nothing. When he, he could have said, well, you, don't, you can't speak up? You can't commit to Yahweh? they doesn't do that. He just continues to move forward with his program. He's totally in control. And when you're sharing Christ, as long as they're letting you speak, you're in control. The Spirit is moving forward. Even if it ends up ending in persecution, you're in control. Because you're getting... Well, you you have the floor. And what you have to say is taken seriously. Otherwise, you wouldn't be persecuted. So they're either going to persecute you, mock you with a mock mocking, false mockings, or they're going to take to heart, which is saying, verse 39, Now, when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, Yahweh, he is God. Uh, So, in an instant, they realized how... Terribly, they were deceived. Paul, when he wrote to the Thessalonians, who, as I mentioned, were into paganism and the heathen world all around them, and they, they were hungry and thirsty for a righteousness they didn't know existed. And then Paul brings it. And he writes to them, he says, everybody's boasting about you in a righteous way. For they themselves declare, 1 Thessalonians 1.9, concerning us, what manner of entry we had to you and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. So Paul says, we brought the message to you. You listened to us and you were converted. The God who answers by fire, he is God. And here it is happening here. It happens in the fullness of the spirit upon the, upon the Christian. You have a pastor who goes to the pulpit. You better hope that the God who answers by fire anoints him to speak so that he does not depart from the word. Even if he is afraid to say something because people might leave the church, but he knows God is telling him he's got to say this, then that's what it has to be. The minute he starts fearing consequences over what God says, it's not not a good beginning in that direction. Verse 40, See, when I was younger, I would have smashed it. If he does that, he would have been an imbecile. But now I'm mature and wise and mellow and the only prophet in the pulpit. But now I know better. I know a little better, and I'll leave some space there to be wrong again. Anyway, verse forty. Elijah said to them, "Seize the prophets of Baal; do not let one of them escape." So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. Two violent episodes, at least, in Scripture. Demand a verdict against ecumenicism. The ecumenicism is that all the other religions are fine. It really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if they're a church, but they don't believe in the Bible and they believe that, uh, there's many ways to heaven. That's ecumenicism. We're going to have a rabbi come up and preach in our church now, and I'm going to pray with him. That's ecumenicism, and God condemns that. The first one is Samuel and Agag. Samuel would have no part of this, and he hacked them in pieces. And then the second, and there's others, but these are two big ones, Elijah and the prophets of Baal here. He's executing them. The signal is, it's not, we're not called to violence. but But we are called to spiritual violence against lies. We're not to tolerate them. We're to take a sword to lies about Jesus Christ, verbally. God does not leave us supposing that mingling into the Christian faith is somehow... Uh, uh, somehow improves what he has done. When Jesus said, it's finished, it is done. And so God does not espouse peace with a lie. This is truly spiritual war on a physical battlefield here. But also, Matthew 10, 34, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword is serious. A sword is always serious. If you see somebody... uh, walking down the street with a, a, a firearm, a pistol, you, you notice it because it's serious. Well, the sword is supposed to be the same way. And hopefully your, your co-workers will treat you as being serious about your faith, even if they don't share it. To let these men escape would be license for them to continue their apostasy and their influence. Now, here's a Haley's Bible handbook. 24th edition. Anything after the 24th edition, don't waste your time. Uh, Anyway, Henry Haley writes this on this section. He says, a temple of Ashereth, goddess wife of Baal, just a few steps from this temple was a cemetery. Now the archaeologists, I'm sorry I didn't set this up, the archaeologists have found where their temple was in this part of the world. Uh, Just a few steps from this temple was a cemetery where many jars were found containing remains of infants who had been sacrificed in the temple. Prophets of Baal and Asherah were official murderers of little children. This is a sidelight on Elijah's execution of the prophets of Baal. Today we have these people just railing, we want the right to kill the unborn. We demand that right, and we'll stop you from preaching against us if it comes to that. Carmel, this Kishon, uh, shows up in the book of Judges. It's where Sisera's army was slaughtered by Barak's Barak's army. uh, Barak's army. Let's get that right. Uh, And uh, at the moment, it's dry because of the drought. Verse 41, Elijah said to Ahab, go up and eat and drink, for there is a sound of abundance of rain. So he tells them, go to your camp and indulge yourself because that's what you do and that's who you are. Rain's coming. You happy now? <laughs> you want to go, go, go back to your old lifestyle? Not a peep from Ahab. I mean, you would think Ahab would have said, what do you mean go and eat? He just killed all my wife's prophets. Uh, you, you, know, you would think there would be some recorded response from Ahab. He gets on his chariot and he goes. He says, for there's the sound of abundance rain. Baal was the main deity in Canaan, as mentioned before. And he was the god of rainfall. And so I, the irony, uh, I, intentionally, I, Isaiah ch- makes this challenge, you know, to bring fire down. and He soaks up the altar and Baal should have prevailed. And this was his area of expertise, if he were real. Well, much more to say, but time's running out. Verse 42, so Ahab went up to eat and drink. And Elijah went up to the top of Carmel and he bowed down to the ground and put his face between his knees. Now, Ahab is heading towards Jezreel where the capital was, his home. Elijah goes up to the mountain, to higher up, because they're certainly not at the apex where this all this was taking place. Elijah's going to catch him and outrun him. That's going to be another miracle, but that comes later. Anyway, uh, So without hesitation, Ahab, he leaves. And it is a shame that he will listen to the prophet's instructions, but not when it comes to righteousness. And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. Then he bowed down on the ground, put his face between his knees, and we'll we'll pause there. This is his prayer posture for this. This is how he's moved to pray. No screaming and shouting and cutting himself. Uh, God promised rain, but it still demands prayer. Is that not insightful? God said, I'm going to make it rain, but still the prophet has to pray. Prayer in the midst of prophecy. James five sixteen: The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Well, he certainly has Elijah in mind because he's been talking about him. James, that is. Verse 43. And said to his servant, see, he has a servant that he will abandon next chapter. Go up now, look toward the sea, so he went up, looked, and said, there's nothing. And seven times he said, go again. Now, you can stand on Mount Carmel, and you can look, if you, if you face north, you can look to the left, and you can see the Mediterranean Sea. And without moving, you look to the right, and you can see the Sea of Galilee. It's, it's a nice little feature uh, about Mount Carmel. Um, he's looking for fulfillment. Of God's word. That's what he's sending him to look for. Seven times. I would have given up at five because that's just a good number to quit at. <laughs> anyway, uh, when we pray, it's good to remember Elijah. But now I come to a point I want to make. There is an ocean of difference between persistent prayer and forced entry in prayer. There are those that preach this breakthrough stuff. You got to break through in prayer. As though, you know, God is reluctant or something, or that it's in your power. And there are subtle differences, but they are important. Uh, this um, prayer of Elijah is built on what? I said we'd come back to this here in verse 43. It's built on the command of God's word. It wasn't something Elijah thought up. I want it to rain. And this is what a lot of people who just break through, I think this would be done. And and it's their will. Breaking and entering is a crime. Even Jesus stood at the door and knocked. Did not break his way into the church of Laodicea in way of illustration. When Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane said, thy will be done. He wasn't saying, if I just, you know, stay at it, I can get God to do what I'm praying. Because I'm going to break through this thing. It's not right. The Son of God, and those on those two occasions, to those very serious occasions, illustrates to us that when we pray, we're in submission to the will of God. As was the prophet, he said, "I am doing. I am the servant. I am doing God's will." And so, by this insistence in prayer—and that's what it is—insisting, um, I think um, we corrupt persistent prayer. Prayer. There are times when we are. Not with vain repetitions, though there may be repetitions. Something's weighing on us, and we can sense the Spirit leading us. And those who preach this breakthrough, I think, confuse and corrupt the persistent prayer, as I said. And more self-will in Jesus' name, as though the name of Jesus just is open sesame, because I've said his name. If I say it enough times, you've got to yield to me. And a lot of, a lot of Christians are buying this stuff, because they want prayer to work. But that's not how life is in Christ. Elijah is under orders. He's not determined to break the drought because he needs rain. Again, 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 1. Go present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the earth. Man's needs are always secondary to God's will. That is a constant. It does not change. Had Peter tried to break through while in Herod's jail, he would have died disappointed. God sent an angel to open the iron gate. We don't even read of Peter praying. We read of him sleeping in jail. Peter could have walked around saying, you know, an atom bomb could have hit him. and wouldn't have died. It could have been a direct strike because Jesus told him, when you get old, Peter, you're going to die. He doesn't work that way. That would have been tempting God and not a wise thing to do. But it's it's kind of humorous to think of it that way. Imagine if Jesus said, you know, you're not going to die until this age. Then you could start jumping off bridges, right? you, You could not. You'd be, again, undoing the promise. You wouldn't get that kind of a promise. So, here he is under orders, and uh, Acts chapter 12, and when Herod was about to bring him out, that's Peter, that night, Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. So, Peter says, look, okay, here I am. He doesn't try to, just got to break through these guards, break through these chains, a lot of breaking through going on here, and I, I just think that this is lost sight of. Moses was told by God to stop praying about this. Deuteronomy 3.26. Moses wanted to get into the promised land. He said, oh, i come this far. Like, this is just not right. And it's your people that caused this situation. Secretly, I like to say this. Don't tell God. Secretly, I side with Moses. Those people were irritating. But don't tell the Lord, because I don't want to get a dose of what Moses got. Now, you've got to know I'm being Ridiculous. But the Lord was angry with me on your account. <laughs> I love that Moses puts that in there. He's, what a man. And would not listen to me. So Yahweh said to me, Enough of that. Speak no more to me of this matter. There goes your breakthrough. It's the will of God that drives our prayer. And it doesn't drive it, it leads us. And you know, many of you have been through some tough things praying to God, you could sense His presence. And I think sometimes maybe you can look back and say, I can remember praying for things I really wanted that God didn't want me to have. Don't let it corrupt your theology. Elijah persisted seven times because God told him this is what he wanted. Full assurance. Paul said, I I sought the Lord three times about this thing. You know what God said to me? My grace is sufficient for you. (laughs) I'm not going to grant this. You're just going to have to live with my grace. You're going to have to know that I love you and I'm going to take care of you. And Paul said, aye, oh, aye. I, I, I. And that's the way, yes, Lord, and, and went on about his business. So, yeah, I do get irritated when, I, when people come up with these little catchy phrases and sell books. And they make a lot of money from Christians that go around. And then they start repeating this because they bought the program. And uh, just the Bible. You tell me about a, a movie, a Christian movie. Okay, that's fine. But I got the Bible. I have the source. And if you like the movie, that's fine. I'm not coming against you or that. And I might even like it. But I might not. I might not even watch it. Because cartoons are so attractive. Those loony tunes forget. No, I'm kidding. Let me finish this up. I checked my time here. Okay. Uh, there is nothing. Uh, that's what the response was. Uh, persistent prayer, of course, when it knows God's will, has to not back down. Obedient prayers. Uh, they, they are a force against hell. And we move to verse 44. Then it came to pass the seventh time that he said there is a cloud as small as a man's hand rising out of the sea. So he said, go up and say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops. Okay, so early I had already had him in his chariot heading home, but evidently not, not so. I've lost sight of that, but I won't, will not confess that I lost sight of it under oath. So the fact is that uh, there can be no progress in the Christian life without prayer. That is one of the great lessons out of this. Even with the will of God, you cannot progress as a Christian. You cannot mature as a Christian if you don't pray. Should it be any other way? If you don't talk to God, why should God minister to you? There are things that God gives in answer to prayer that he will not give without prayer. That is a fact. Uh, He wants his people involved with him, but he does not want them to be nagging him. And we have to watch out for that. All of us do. It would be so nice if I were perfect. I could stand up here and tell you all what to do right. And not have to worry myself. But that is not how it is. I need prayer. I need people praying for me. I need to pray for myself. I I pray for the people in this flock. I pray. I tell you, one of my favorite prayers is I ask God to get you to give me money. No. (laughs) Never. Never. All right, verse 45. Now it happened in the meantime that the sky became black with clouds and the wind and there was a heavy rain. So Ahab rode away and went to Jezreel. Um, You would think that everybody would say, Baal's not the storm god. Yahweh is the god of all. Nothing didn't happen. Verse 46, then the hand of Yahweh came upon Elijah and he girded up his loins and ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So this distance is about 13 miles or more. It depends on what part. Uh, it's hilly, of course. And he outruns the chariot. This is a miracle. This is not like, oh, you know, he, this is um, pretty impressive. Figuring he's been up all day. That's why he was snacking on the locust. Well, he, I, he doesn't say that he was, but we know he liked those kind of things. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, I think he wanted to get there to see The look on the face of everyone when when it was told. And he did not factor in. He got a little presumptuous. He did not factor in Satan's response. And uh, we learn a lesson. If you're going to preach and start leading people to righteousness in Satan's, Satan's territory, don't be surprised if he rears up against you. But God is stronger and can make Satan helpless. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, may we take these lessons from Scripture and remain excited about them. May we put them to work, to your glory. It's all about you. It is not about showing how great a Christian we can be. It's about serving you with love and honor. And uh, thank you for your grace and mercy upon us in this process. May you get us all home safely tonight. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.